This is Lead with a Question. So we have the stick with it philosophy and we have the pivot philosophy. Which one is it? It cannot be both. And, and that's what's difficult about writing a book. That's what's difficult about being an entrepreneur or a manager. When do you pivot? When do you stick with it? Hi, I'm Rob Callen. We live in a time when people are seeing that the old way of doing business is broken and that leading into the future requires something new, a deeper focus on humanity, the courage to let go of power and ego, a desire to nurture the conditions for co-creation, and the bravery not to have all the answers. On this show, I, along with my friends Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen, connect with guests who embody these principles. And whether household names or not, they've shattered the status quo, often as misfits, to shape the future with others and achieve miraculous things in work and life. An impressive and sometimes controversial group of figures populates the pantheon of people who have changed the world. Walt Disney, Estee Lauder, Jane Goodall, Henry Ford, Marie Curie, Gandhi, Steve Jobs, Martin Luther King Jr. It's tempting to assume that for this lot, greatness was somehow bestowed like a birthright. And yet, when we dig deeper, we find that our remarkable people had to muddle through forks in the road just like we do. Today, we'll hear from a man who knows a thing or two about pivoting in business, in family, and in life. He'll help us consider a really tough question. What's the best career strategy? An entertaining conversation with fellow podcaster Guy Kawasaki on this episode of Lead with a Question. I started off, my very first episode was Jane Goodall. And, you know... <laughs> That's a hell of a way to start. So I've had people like Jane Goodall, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Margaret Atwood, Christy Yamaguchi, Steve Wozniak, Steven Pinker, Bob Cialdini, David Ocker. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. Vivek Murthy, who's the Surgeon General of the United States right now. So I've been very fortunate in truly getting remarkable people, not necessarily rich people or not necessarily famous people, but remarkable people. And, and my whole mission is to help people be remarkable too. So this podcast is not about me. It, you know, if you listen to it, I think I'm about 10% of the talking and 90% of the listening I have decided to write a book based on the podcast. I've had about 200 guests and um, there is a lot of knowledge there. And I, I suppose you could listen to 200 hours and read, I don't know, a hundred of hundred books. Not everybody has written a book who's been on my podcast. You could read a hundred books and listen to 200 hours, or you can read what's coming up from me. And um, I'm, 
I'm really trying to leave a mark to dent the universe, as Steve would say. And the dent in the universe is for me is that I help people be remarkable. And I hope I've done it with my speaking, my writing, my podcasting, uh, my investing and my advising. And uh, as I look back over my career, I think this podcast is the best work I have ever done. Having said that, it may also be the least appreciated, but it is the best work I've ever done. And, you know, there are moments like Jane Goodall telling me that the reason why she got hired for the leaky organization was because she had secretarial skills, not because she had a PhD in primatology or biology or zoology from Oxford. It was because she had secretarial skills. And so, you know, time and time again, the lesson comes up that... Um, you know, looking back, you can connect the dots. You can say, okay, so I went to secretarial school. I went to Africa. They needed a secretary. So I got hired, you know, the dots all connected, but when you're doing the dots, it's impossible to know what's going to connect. So for me, I went to Stanford and my roommate uh, was a guy who loved technology, bought an Apple one, bought an Apple two years later, he hired me into the Macintosh division. So, you know, did I have this grand plan? Okay, go to Stanford, meet a nerd, get hired later. Not at all. And, and also at Stanford, I got a degree in psychology. So you can look back and say, God, you are so smart. In college, you got a degree in psychology so that someday you could be a marketer, an evangelist. And I will tell you that I hate to disappoint you, but the reason why I majored in psychology was that it was the easiest major I could find at Stanford. <laughs> so, you know, the, the dots, <laughs> the dots may have connected, but it wasn't the plan. Wow. Well, it's been quite a journey, it sounds like. But, you know, I, I think the lesson for your listeners is that you know, all of us would love to believe we have this grand plan and we thought it all out and it's linear and you go from A to B to C to D to E. But I, I think at the beginning of your career anyway, um, and maybe, you know, through, I don't know, 30 years old, my thought is, you know, paint as many dots as you can, because the more dots you have, the more likely they'll be connected. And in a sense, I kind of feel sorry for people who have, you know, from, they say anyway, from, you know, five years old, I wanted to be X. So I, you know, I dedicated my whole life to being X. And well, you know, I mean, that obviously works for someone, but who am I to judge? But I think, you know, just painting a lot of dots and connecting them with, with, retrospect may be a better path. Um, but it's, it's hard to say that, right? Because, you know, you, you, you think you can control your fate and, you know, I mean, at, at one level, if Stanford had assigned me to a different dorm, I would have never met him. So and if true. I had never met him, maybe I would be in Honolulu working at a Starbucks right now. I mean, who knows? Right. So, uh, you know, paint a lot of dots is what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. What, what you're describing reminds us of a, a saying we use, uh, experiment with experience. Mm -hmm. And I think so many of us limit ourselves, right. With, we defer to an employer to give us that job title that becomes our identity. 
becomes a label for us. Um, but you know, there's, it used to be the generalist approach and then it became the specialist. I think the right. future's really, um, leaning towards a hybrid approach where, you know, not just follow your passion, explore your passions, right? Experiment yeah. with experience and, and well, and, that's how you can create some of these dots you're describing, right? <laughs> well, I have a lot of thoughts in this topic. So first of all, um, I don't agree with the theory of pursue your passions because I think right. that sets up too high a bar. Um, you know, this, this concept that you have to find your passion and, oh my God, you're 12 years old. You haven't found your life calling and passion right. yet. What's wrong with you? Right. And so um, I discovered podcasting at, let's say... 64. So it took me 64 years to discover podcasting. Now it's my passion. And I'm telling you that I think the better path in life is you, you scratch your curiosities, your itches, you, you pursue what interests you until it doesn't interest you. And maybe if you're lucky over the course of your lifetime, you will discover a handful of passions but to believe that you have to find your passion Misleading. at a young age and pursue that, you're setting yourself up for failure because it's, it's unlikely. And so, again, we're, we're coming back to paint a lot of dots because you just don't know. Yeah, I think this notion of like, and you talk about paint, painting a lot of dots. I love the metaphor because it's, it's expansion, right? It's expansion of possibilities. And, you know, as at Disney, we work with the Imagineers and their process was always two phases. It was expansion of idea, right? ideation, right? Just put stuff out there. It's crazy, right? Just put it out there. And then the next phase was contraction of let's focus on where we want to go, right? And it feels like that's something that I'd say got lost, but it hasn't, like, if we look at the business world in general, right? Status quo, very science of management oriented right? How, how leaders have traditionally led teams uh, or people, it's been very contraction or like very focused right on performance results, et cetera. And not, not a lot about painting the dots. Right. And like, like you're saying, so I'm curious, like how you would think about that lens of leadership and how cultures work. I mean, if, if you look at the world's greatest business hero, which is of course, Steve Jobs. So he was heavily influenced by his trips to Japan. Now, if you want to believe that Steve Jobs was so brilliant that he said to himself as a young person, I'm going to go to Japan, I'm going to fall in love with their aesthetic, and I'm going to fall in love with their concepts, um, and that'll somehow influence my decision on user interface. I mean, I hate to disappoint you, but I don't think that's how it worked. So, you know, did he know when he went to Japan that this would influence the Macintosh user interface years later. There's no way. I mean, there is just no way that that is true. So, um, you know, I, I, I hope your listeners don't take away from this discussion that I'm saying, you know, just don't plan, don't work hard, don't be disciplined, don't do all this. Just like let it all hang out. I'm not, I'm not talking about 1970, sit in a beanbag chair, smoke marijuana and wear your Birkenstocks and, you know, see what happens. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that uh, d- don't, don't 
don't get yourself framed too early. And, you know, this came up in my podcast many times and it comes up in particular with athletes. So I had Brandy Chastain, the soccer player, football player. Um, I also had Carrie Jennings Walsh, the greatest all time, you know, women's volleyball player. And both of them said, you know, in terms of sports, don't specialize in a sports when you're young. You know, don't just go all into volleyball or all into football. Um, play a lot of different sports. You just don't know. And the skills transfer. And you know, I mean, I'm, if you're parents, I'm sure you go to some of these sporting events and you can just tell the parents who believe that their kid is going to be the professional football, soccer, basketball, hockey player. Right. And at age eight, they've already determined that. So, you know, you, you've got to have, you're going to train for hockey and then you're going to play hockey. And then there's going to be, you know, another league you're going to have to join. And then like, all year you're playing hockey because someday you're going to be a professional hockey player. Well, I don't know. There's probably how many, you know, a couple thousand people in the world who make money, enough money to live playing professional hockey. So there's 2000 of them. Let's say, I don't know how many NHL teams there are 30, 30 times 30 is 900, double that thousand, 2000 professional hockey players. Well, I mean, you know, Apple has 250,000 people making a good living and Google does and Twitter used to. And, you know, so um, th that's another lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Cause uh, as, as an analogy, I mean, sport in itself, but that, that's a big dot to paint for just the experience of working with the team. Right. I mean, I know for myself, I look back and, you know, I was usually sitting the bench in varsity, but, or basketball, but I was learning, right. How to be, yep. How to, how to root for a team, how to partner, well, how to play hard in practice. And you know, all I, that, you know, my kids were all athletes. So I told them, you know what? It's very unlikely that the star quarterback is going to be the one who starts the next Google. If I were you, I would be friends with the water boy because the water boy is much more likely to be the next Steve Jobs than the quarterback. Now, the quarterback could be the next, you know, Tom Brady, but um, the water boy could be the next. Well, I was going to say Elon Musk. I don't, <laughs> I don't hold him up as a good example anymore. Yeah. That definition you know may have changed. <laughs> stick with the water boys and yeah. stick with the, you know, the people on the spectrum. Those are the entrepreneurs. So you give me hope guy. You give me hope. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too late. <laughs> well, and I appreciate that you're bringing the parenting aspect into it because I think, um, you know, there's always the, that siren call of living vicariously through children. Um, but even, yeah. you know, projecting decades into the future as a leader at an organization, I think it's probably pretty tempting to say, well, we've got this clearly defined role in the organization and I perceive you as being really strong in this area. So this is what you should do. And so I wonder, is there, is there a, a happy medium between, you know, the seventies scenario that you painted all the bean bags um, and the weed <laughs> and such strict rigidity that it kind of kills people's uh, feeling of freedom. I mean, is there a way to happily reconcile those two scenarios for you in a leadership setting? Well, honestly, only by looking backwards, 
right? So, so if you look backwards and your kids are successful, you say, of course they were successful. It was my good parenting. I gave them flexibility. Or let's say your kids are successful and you say, and you look back and you say, of course they're successful. I disciplined them to focus. <laughs> now, if your kid's not successful, then, then what do you say? Uh, it's his fault. It's her fault. Um, I, I, I don't think parents should li live vicariously through their kids. Um, I would much prefer that their kids live vicariously through their parents. And, you know, I, I can't tell you that I was so smart to do this consciously, but again, looking backwards, I can connect the dots. So we, we, we my wife and I took our two sons to a, a hockey game and they loved hockey. And first game they ever seen me too. First, first time I ever went to a hockey game and we loved the hitting and we loved the contact of the, and the constant motion. And, you know, hockey is constant motion, constant action. It's not like football where you have a three second play, you have 30 seconds to discuss what to do in the three seconds. And then you have a two minute commercial, right? And so I, I think somebody said in an NFL game, there's about, I don't know, six minutes of action and about four hours of ads and breaks and timeouts and all that. It's not true in hockey. and and, and so they fell in love with hockey that night and they decided, they told us, oh, we want to try hockey. So of course, being Silicon Valley parents, we, you know, we, we don't want to, you know, psychologically scar our precious jewels. So whatever they express an interest in, we have to foster. So we, we start them off in hockey lessons or hockey camp or whatever. And my wife said to me, you know, I don't want you to be like a typical Silicon Valley husband where you're on the sidelines or you're in the rink and you have your Blackberry and every once in a while you look up to see if your son's on the ice. I want you involved in their lives. So you take up hockey too. Okay. So I always listen to my wife. So I took up hockey and I loved hockey. I loved hockey. I used to play hockey three or four times a week. And then 15 years later, my daughter decides that she loves surfing. So I took up surfing. And so if you look back on my life, if you want to reinvent history to optimize how intelligent you are, I could say, well, what I did is I did not live vicariously through my children. I didn't force them to take up what I took up. I didn't force, you know, how, how many people do you know, like the, the father or the mother plays golf. So they make the kids play golf. I did it opposite. <laughs> My kids liked surfing. I took up surfing. My kids like hockey. I took up hockey. Now one son has taken up wingsuiting and that's where I draw the line because <laughs> <laughs> I want to look good when I die. So, um, but generally speaking, I arrange my interests to match theirs, not vice versa. Yeah. This seems to be, uh, and we, we, we have a deep belief in, in something you've embodied and other people we, admire, uh, embody is being co-creative, right? And this is a, what you're tapping it is you're sharing is it's co-creative parenting, right? It's finding those, the overlap where experiences are shared and, uh, you know, it, rather than just the top yeah. down, right? Yeah. Now, you know, co-creating is a great term, but I just, I just want your listeners to be clear. I'm not telling you I planned this. Okay. I'm not telling you I was smart when it was happening. I'm just telling you, looking back, 
Now, if they had taken up stuff that I did not instantly love, we would be having a different discussion. Like if my, if my daughter took up, I don't know, jazz dancing, we not, we might not be having the same conversation, (laughs) but, um, I certainly did not force them to do things that I loved. That's for sure. Yeah. I'm curious too, like as a culture, as you, as you think about, you know, cultures, companies, you've witnessed, experienced, uh, you've had a lot of experience in the tech world, uh, you know, with Canva as well. And I remember, you know, it was about 10 years ago or so we had, um, I'd been working on a mentoring network and we had you on. And the notion was like, it was sharing perspective, right. With, uh, people that are learning, right. And, and they're curious about how to be successful. We had you in there and, uh, there was a guy we brought in and he actually just did a pitch. Like he had, he had a, he had a startup and he shared, you know, and you, you jumped right in, right. You went with it and you gave him some really clear perspective. And so you adjusted quickly to the situation you know, rather than kind of set your terms for what it would be. And I just really appreciated the fluid approach, right? And, and what you're describing with your kids too is that fluid approach. I'm curious where you've seen, of course, Apple's a great example of probably how to do this um, and as, as far as at their best, uh, being fluid, kind of that big garage, right? Well, I got to tell you, I don't remember Apple as being fluid and flowing. Okay. The way I remember Apple is Steve said, do this, you do this. <laughs> okay, So it, it, it was a dictatorship. Now it was a benevolent dictatorship most of the time, but don't get me wrong. We weren't exactly sitting around voting about whether the trash can should be in the right corner or the left corner. And you know, whether the default font should be Monaco or Palatino, there are some things that came on down from on high, but I mean, this is the danger of uh, uh, trying to emulate Steve jobs. So Steve jobs, definitely it was a benevolent dictatorship. It was a quasi democracy. If you were intelligent and you made a great argument, you could win. It wasn't just a total dictatorship. Okay. Don't get me wrong, but it was not, you know, it was not sitting around in beanbag chairs, just like free thinking the future. Um, But in order for that to succeed, you need a great dictator, which was Steve. So the problem is that many people look at the Steve Jobs example and say, okay, I'm going to be like Steve. I'm going to be a dictator. Well, the being the dictator is the easy part. It's being the good dictator that makes the right decisions. That's the hard part. And that's why very few people have been good dictators. So um, that's why I caution people whenever they, you know, become Steve Jobs heroes. And like one of them is about to go to jail for 12 years. So it's 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 not as simple as looking on the outside and you you wear the jeans and you wear the black mock turtleneck and you become a dictator who rips people in public. And now you'll be the next Steve jobs. That's (laughs) you're, you're confusing correlation and causation there. Yeah. That's one question too, is over time. And we've, we've had some experience with, uh, so like Ed Catwell that spent time with, with, uh, Steve with Pixar and just, you know, to your point, there's kind of that flashy version, kind of the, the sexy bad boy that people would say, well, that, that's, that's, that's it. Right. And it's not like, but the artifice of that isn't the point, but we're curious too, like 
seems like there was also a story arc, right? Steve was also somebody who got fired from his own company, right? Later in the Stanford talk, he says it's the best thing that ever happened to him, right? What, what did you see over that time, uh, kind of his story arc and his journey of, of his character, uh, what he learned maybe with Next and Pixar as he came back to Apple? Were the things that you noticed uh, as far as changes? Well, in a rare moment of humility, let me tell you that I cannot interpret Steve's thinking. I mean, because Steve was at such a different level. He, he was, you know, he has, he had a different operating system and a different operating system so different that a mere mortal like me cannot possibly explain it to you. Okay? I just, I don't know how he saw the world. So, um, you know, can, can I tell you that w- when I saw him come back to Apple, I knew he would be a success again and he would raise Apple from its ashes to become a trillion dollar company? Well, the honest answer is no. And the reason why I can tell you it's no is because if I believe that, why did I quit? So I'm the dumbass who quit Apple twice. And then after I quit twice, Steve asked me to come back and I turned him down. So you have to conclude from those three stories that I'm a dumbass. Oh, because if I knew he was going to do what he was going to do, duh, I would have stayed there. Right. And so that's, you know, that's a few hundred million dollars that I just <laughs> blew right there. So uh, I, I, You know, it's so easy to predict or not to predict. It's so easy to say, yeah, I knew he would succeed, blah, blah, blah. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. Well, on the theme of, uh, you know, retrospectively connecting dots, then, uh, you know, you've spent a lot of time with, you know, per the the name of your, your show, some remarkable people. Can you identify any common attributes of some of the sure. remarkable people that you've encountered? L- listen, I, I can identify common attributes, but I will tell you that there is so much diametrical opposition in conflict in information that it is almost a disservice and let me give you the height of sort of an example of this so i can cite you many cases of where it was so brilliant and remarkable to pivot you start a company with one idea you pivot to another you become successful right i can also point you many times where it was smart to ignore the naysayers and stick with it so we have the stick with it philosophy and we have the pivot philosophy. Which one is it? It cannot be both. And, and that's what's difficult about writing a book. That's what's difficult about being an entrepreneur or a manager. When do you pivot? When do you stick with it? And you only hear about the success stories, right? You only hear about, oh yeah, we started as a consulting firm. We pivoted to a search engine. We became Google. Hmm. Okay. Or, you know, we started, we, we created a computer with a user interface and we stuck with it. And then we created an iPhone and we became a trillion dollar company. We never gave up on the idea of the Apple empowering individuals. We didn't pivot to on enterprise hardware. Right. So which is it guy? 
And the answer is both. So how do you pick? The answer is, that's a good question. Um, that is a very good question. And I think, you know, if, if your listeners encounter people who say they quote, know when to pivot or when to make these kinds of seemingly absolute divergence, you either got to go lie. A or B. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a lie. It is a lie. But having said that, I think it is instructive to read a book or to listen to people who explain there are these two concepts, right? So sometimes it is right to pivot and sometimes it is right to stick it out. That, that, that in itself is useful as opposed to thinking that there is only one way. You must pivot or you must stick it out. Listen, if, if I knew the answer to those kind of questions, mm -hmm. I would charge a lot more <laughs> for my book. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and the last few years, you know, because when I was young, I didn't really have a concept of like external factors being determinants in whether someone was was successful or not in, in business. I just thought, well, if you're really smart <laughs> yeah. and you work hard, you'll be successful. But, you know, I had a lot of people that I knew who I considered, you know, deeply uh, talented, very intelligent, who just got, you know, destroyed in business because they yep. just happened to be in the wrong industry at the wrong time. And it wasn't anything yep. they necessarily did wrong. It was, it was timing. And so I feel like, you know, that type of a, a situation, I think, uh, makes it harder to, to say like, yeah, you know, there, there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. I mean, sometimes it's, no kidding. it's yeah. out of your control. Well, and I bet you also know people who were just total dumb shit, clueless assholes who succeeded. And I'll list their names now. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's stuff that you just can't explain. Yep. I mean, listen, as I get older and older, I have come to the belief that it is better to be lucky than smart. Yeah. Yeah. This notion too, like I remember, you know, we went, I went through business school and you know, they do all the business cases and you assume, you know, it's because it's academia, right? There's going to be the one answer and you get to the end yeah. of the business case and the professor, you said, well, what, what's the answer? And they'd say, well, it depends. That's the approach they took. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you want to go down that rat hole, not only do people in, in academia assume that there is one right answer, they also assume that let, let's just pretend that you have figured out the right answer. Then they assume that it's easy to implement that right answer, right? So this is like, you. let's take an extreme example. You hire McKinsey or you hire a world famous management expert in academia and he or she comes in and says, okay, what you need to do is this. You need to be in the upper right hand corner of the magic quadrant. Pay me my 5 million bucks. Oh shit. Duh. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. We need to make our product better, faster, cheaper with a better user interface. Holy shit. Uh, you, that never occurred to us until you came in here. Your $5 million fee was worth it. Well, duh. The hard part is how do you do that? Right. And that's, <laughs> that's where you separate the successful from the unsuccessful people. Yeah. Well, you, you were tapping into this notion too, that like, that's far more creative and there's far more art, uh, to all of this. Uh, you know, in fact, you wrote a book called the art of the start, but this creative notion, right. That, 
And going back to Sir Ken Robinson, right, that it's not the one answer approach, at least how the world actually works, right? And how the future will, will work. And, yep. you know, we had another guest, we were talking to Nolan Bushnell, who started Atari and, you know, he worked yep. with Steve, both Steve's uh, back in the day. And he was sharing, you know, he just said like, look, the problem is these leaders, you know, in these companies, they just assume that it's just the rules-based approach. And there's all these singularities happening. It used to be that you could say, hey, that's one random event. But to your point, it's like all these things are popping up. And so they have to be fluid and agile and they have to figure out how to deal with that. And by the way, it's proliferating and it's accelerating so that like what Peter Thiel would say, hey, you know, set your 10-year plan, do it in six months. Well, you know, given the pandemic and everything else, we've had our 10-year plans handed to us, right? So like, <laughs> what, what do we do now, right? And what do leaders do well, I, now? You know, yeah. You know, what's going to be, I think the most interesting business development right now is going to be um, open AI. So like to me, I look at open AI and I've used it several times to search and correlate and summarize information. To me, open AI and chat GPT, that is an absolute total earth shattering game changer. And you know, like, I'll give you an example. This is a very mundane example. I'm not going to talk about highly lofty issues like is AI sentient because that's above my pay grade. But let me walk you through an example that just shocked me, which is Thanksgiving. I'm roasting a turkey. Okay. And for the life of me, I don't know, should it be breast up or breast down? So you go to Google and you type, Rest, roast turkey, breast up or breast down, right? Some kind of search thing like that. And you come up with 400,000 answers. Breast up, breast down, breast up, breast down, breast up, breast down. And you watch five videos. And at the end of those five videos, you're more confused than ever. So what does Guy do? I watched a Martha Stewart video. And if Martha Stewart says breast down, I go breast down. Okay. Now, if you go to open AI and you type in, should I roast a turkey breast up or breast down? It doesn't give you 400,000 links. It gives you one summary that says, you know, if you do it breast up or if you do it breast down, put the first two and a half hours when it reaches 155 degrees, Flip the bird over so that the breast doesn't dry out and it can get the crust on the you know breast or what, whatever. But it has one answer. This one answer may reflect all of the knowledge of the 400,000 links in Google, but it has one freaking answer. I don't want to watch 400,000 videos to figure out breast up or breast out. Just give me the freaking answer. Maybe give me the pros and cons. Breast down cooks faster, but you won't get the crispy skin. Breast up, cooks slower, but you will get more crispy skin. Okay, from that, I can make a decision, right? To me, that has earth-shattering implications because people don't go to Google saying, oh, if only I could find hundreds of thousands of links to discuss this issue. People go to Google to find out breast up, or breast down. So if I were Google, I would be scared shitless of open AI. That's number one. And number two, I also think that if I were Wikipedia, I would be scared shitless of open AI. 
because Wikipedia is dependent upon smart people, great people, sort of looking at all these citations and writing an article, right? Now, it seems to me that AI could search for more sources and AI could speak every language and find out that, oh, there was this great discussion and thought about how to roast a turkey in Croatian and I've translated it and now I'm citing it. So what's going to be the better Wikipedia entry in a few years, AI or all the Wikipedians in the world? Hmm. That's interesting. Now taking that even one more step further right now, you can go to Wikipedia to an article that reflects the wisdom of many Wikipedians, which is fantastic. But what happens when the world no longer has to go to a summary, has to go to a quote entry? What happens when computing is so good that you can ask a question and in real time, the answer is provided to you? No more going to a site that summarizes information. It's summarized in real time. I mean, these are earth shattering ramifications and Microsoft just announced how they're going to incorporate um, open AI into Bing. Oh, that is going to be so interesting now. So I've obviously I'm really into this. So now here's an interesting thing. So with, with Google, how to roast the Turkey, on the side are all the ads, right? For turkeys and basters and recipe books and all that because it's going to secondary sources. Well, with open AI, when it says these are the advantages, pros and cons, it's not going to point you to the New York times article to read or the Martha Stewart video. It's just going to answer. So what happens to secondary sources in that world? Wow. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But if I were somebody, if, if I were younger, I would say to myself, why don't I build the ultimate encyclopedia? Like truly the ultimate encyclopedia and just throw open AI at every possible subject and charge people to access that. I mean, maybe that's not a well thought out idea, but you know, this could be Encyclopedia Britannica has a second chance, right? Yeah, you're you're talking about like aggregation and pulling to curation, right? But pulling together, being integrators as far as the platform, right? So the platform is an integrator now, finding all these patterns, but providing in a very simple way. I wonder too, like as we think about people's roles in this, right? Like as they look to their future, whether as a creator, as a leader, does that mean that they need to be more of an integrator, right? Of all of this stuff, right? And going back to the dots analogy, connecting dots in a meaningful yeah. way and identifying patterns. Like, is that the future? Well, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's some smart person who could tell you this number, but I bet you somebody could say, you know what? The number of people working in a job today that didn't exist five years ago is X. And I bet X is a big number and a big percentage. So, you know, if, if you think you can go to school and prepare yourself for a job from five years from now, I think you're deluding yourself. Now, you may go to school to learn analytical skills and to learn, you know, these, these kinds of skills and, and, and techniques that can be applied to anything. But I mean, that would be like saying, I'm going to go to school to learn 
how to make internal combustion engines, right? I'm going to go to the University of whatever, University of Michigan, and I'm going to major in industrial internal combustion engine engineering. Oops. I think that's how people have to think. Yeah, I, I agree. And I and I saw, you know, a number of classmates who had majored in print journalism. And, you know, at the time that I was <laughs> an undergrad and like all this stuff yeah. was happening and like people were just jumping out of that program because it was like, oh, no, what have I done? Like I put, you know, all my chips in in the wrong place. And 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 it sounds like, you know, the the overarching theme, because in this conversation, we've established you know, you can only connect the dots in retrospect. Uh, you know, having a solid plan for the future is at best like a dream. You know, you can't predict the future. So it sounds like one of the only things that is is going to be truly, you know, useful for your future is to embrace the principle of of flexibility and agility yep. and and maybe curiosity as well um so that you can i was just gonna say that yeah just continue and, you know, to and, integrate to continue your example i i would i would still make the case though that if you went to school and majored in print journalism you would still learn techniques that would apply to non-print journalism right the you know how to write a good headline how to write a good opening paragraph how to find information this is has to be prior to open ai but you know there are skills whether it's print or internet that if journalism that still are necessary so i i wouldn't write off the person who went to print journalism i mean for the same sake I just said, well, you know, what happens if you majored in internal combustion engine engineering? Well, obviously, hard to make a case that that's going to be a growth of business. But theoretically, you learn principles of internal combustion that you can apply to electric motors. I would hope about, you know, the physics of moving or heat transfer or something. I mean, I, I can't I can't believe that everything you learned is useless. <laughs> Yeah, you're kind of getting at this. And it's called, you know, the, you said earlier, painting big dots, the the building blocks, right? That the details may change, but if you have the building blocks, uh, you know, that those can be useful for building yeah. the future. Well, I, th I think, you know, <laughs> we'll take these two extreme examples of print journalism and internal combustion engine, engine engineering. So let's say you painted those dots. But then taking two people with identical academic backgrounds in, in, let's say, two what might superficially be considered irrelevant degrees now. One person sees how you can apply what you learned in journalism and internal combustion engineering to electric motors, to hydrogen engines, to whatever, or what I learned in print journalism still applies. You still need to write a great headline, right? So it, the other person says, oh shit, I studied the wrong thing. I mean, that's a matter of whether your mindset is growth or non-growth. That's not a function of what you majored in. Yeah, that's, that's an awesome point. It, it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about pivoting or doubling down, 
right? It's, it's that similar framing, right? When you're in college, yeah. like if you recognize, oh, I need to pivot or I'm, I know that I could build upon this knowledge base or these skill sets, right? Very interesting. Yep. I want to go to your house for Thanksgiving with all this turkey <laughs> talk. So if you're using you know, AI for your recipes, please, I want an invite, okay? Well, you know, I tell you what, I have two big green eggs and we'll do breast up in one and breast down in the other and we'll compare. Love it. <laughs> but well, I mean, it's funny because there, there are these really inter- interesting discussions about how a- sentient AI is and can it predict the future? Can it be creative? You know, can it do all these great things? I absolutely understand those questions. But you know what? You know, call me a, an idiot, but I got to tell you, 99.9% of my searches are how do I, how do I remove a screw where the, the head has been stripped? Or how do I roast a turkey? Or how do I fill out a sinkhole? I'm not, (laughs) I mean, that's the nature of my searches. I don't know about you guys. Maybe you guys are searching for the answer of is AI sentient, but I'm figuring out how do I fill up the freaking sinkhole? Practical. Yeah. Practical pursuits. That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, And you know what? I don't want 400,000 links to how to fill a sinkhole. I just want to be told, you know, (laughs) just, just do this, tamp it down, do this, tamp it down. Yeah. Well, and it seems like in the, in the kind of the stack of knowledge, right. You have that kind of manual work, right. Where like my dad was a handyman, right. So he would like, it was like, he knew how to, he'd just fix it, fix it, fix it. He's like, your car, you got to figure out. And he'd be under the car, like working for hours. And I would just say to him, oh, I'll just pay somebody. I'll, you know, I don't know. Or I'll just like, I'll find a different way. Like, he's like, no, no, you have to do like, no, I'll just, I'll pay somebody, whatever. But to your point too, like, I mean, I do the same, right? It's like, I'll find a video for something on you know YouTube. It's a quick fix. We have this kind of manual work that has, can be solved for in many of those ways. I mean, granted, you may have to pull in some additional help, but you know what, what to do with that. And then knowledge work, it seems like that's where, you know, when it's, as it's crossing into that territory where we can say, hey, I'll just pull some templates online for, a le- instead of connecting with a lawyer, I'll get some legal stuff I need or whatever, right? Like maybe there's right. other things we can do uh, and that might scare people, right? Cause they're like, well, I'm in that. But then to your point about the opportunistic version, like the, the dystopian future versus the hopeful future dystopian is, Hey, we're all dead. Like, you know, it's over, you know, our, fi- our, uh, you know, <laughs> our, our, our livelihood's gone, but the hopeful future is, well, how can I be more strategic, right? How can I be creative in shaping that future differently? Right. Even if they're in a space well, that is functional or whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, be interesting. McCarthy could go to uh, OpenAI and say, "How do I get a majority for Speaker of the House? How do I get the two hundred votes?" That'd be interesting. What OpenAI would answer to that? Well, <laughs> oh my gosh! We we need politicians to use OpenAI right now. Well, and, and I was and I was actually thinking Jeez. about that while we were talking. How do I become a good leader? You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and be, because I think you know, at the each election cycle, we you know, so much effort is put into understanding the sentiment of the population and which way are they going to vote. And um, it would be interesting to see if there were ethical applications of of open AI there. But um, even more 
I think um, in in kind of the uh, a practical sense. So I spend a lot of time at work thinking about employee engagement, and yeah. you know, one of the biggest challenges that any organization has is how do you, in an efficient way, measure how people are feeling about working at the company, and what mm-hmm. if you could leverage something like OpenAI? And someone could actually have a very human feeling interactive conversation with open AI that would then, you know, take all of those insights from people and then bring you something actionable that you could actually do to make the employment experience better. Why not? And you know what? As of now, or not, and just listen, it's not like I know exactly what's going on at OpenAI, but as of now, I think OpenAI isn't connected to the internet. So you know, imagine when it's hooked up. I had no idea. I'm pretty sure that's true. You could ask OpenAI if it's hooked up, and it'll tell you. <laughs> this episode of Lead with a Question was produced by me, Rob Callen, with support from my co hosts and BraveCore founders. Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen. The music you heard was composed by Ian as part of another project he's involved in called Moon Machine. Dave Arcade created our podcast cover art. Special thanks to Guy Kawasaki for taking the time to join us today. Guy is the chief evangelist of Canva and the creator of Guy Kawasaki's Remarkable People podcast, which is available everywhere. He's also the author of 15 books. Guy's website is GuyKawasaki.com. If you want to learn more about the work we're doing at BraveCore, you can check out our website at BraveCore.co. The Lead with a Question podcast is a production of BraveCore LLC. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for being with us.